and welcome to the Backpage Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts, I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, I don't want to ask how's your tooth hole on every episode, but got anything stuck in there lately? No, it's. I, I think it's like healed. Okay, good. Well, I'm, I'm glad so to hear that. So that's the end of that uh, content stream. <laughs> um, some listeners were frustrated you never answered my question about how much it would cost to put a new tooth there. Did What, what would I, the cost be? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, damn. Because people people seem to really want to know. Because I asked you like three times that podcast, and you wouldn't elaborate. And some people thought that was because it it might be quite cheap, and you were just refusing to pay it. And others were like, "Well, actually, I think you'll find dental surgery costs a lot of money." And really, we got nowhere. But um, we have no further information, so no, um, can't help on that front. That's a, a piece of back page law that will never be filled in. <laughs> yeah, the wiki page is I, a stub for that. Just one. Just look it up online. Just, you can look. You've all got Google. Type yeah. in tooth replacement cost. <laughs> Yes, a new tooth price. Yes, <laughs> very good. Okay, this podcast then, it's all about RPGs because Baldur's Gate 3 came out and over half a million of people are playing it simultaneously at any one time on Steam, which is enormous. It's a huge game from Larian, obviously a successor to to foundational uh, RPGs from the, um, the 90s and noughties. So a huge deal. This has finally come along and it appears to be one of the biggest games of the year and to talk about RPGs in general, we've brought back popular Backpage guest, Jeremy Peel. Jeremy, how's it going? Hello, I'm good, thanks. I noticed um, a couple of weeks ago when you had uh, Margaret, former Edge editor, on, you, you apologised for your opening bullshit to her, but you, you don't do that with me. <laughs> it's sort of like when your parents... You're scum like us. Well, yeah, I'm very like part of the you know furniture. It's a compliment in a way, but uh, it's like when your parents have friends around and you're like... I've never seen these plates before. Like everyone's making an effort. Yeah, we were just a bit more intimidated, I think, with Margaret. And um, as, as some listeners identified, she's obviously very nice. But um, also, we didn't know her. So we didn't know how sort of like tooth holy we could be about that stuff. Didn't we talk about your tooth at the start of the episode anyway, Matthew? I can't remember. No, we talked about uh, eating baps and getting heartburn. And then she was eating a bap. And actually, I felt like in hindsight, Listening back to it, she would have been well up for the bap chat. Yeah, you, yeah. you realised too late she was a kindred spirit in the in the bap yeah. chat. Yeah, but yeah. I she, think the problem she... is that we assume based on the tone of Edge that all Edge editors are going to be quite severe, but then <laughs> they're not, and it's fine. So yeah, yeah. I think Edge has to sort of like counter uh, program that. It's like the first time I got like notes on Edge style from Jen Simpkins. There was a bit, and it was like, we can be funny. We're allowed to be funny, as everyone assumes that. Yeah, yeah, you've got to leave your sense of humour at the door. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Just no emojis in the body text. That's the uh, you know that they draw the line at that. There was a very funny, <laughs> short-lived meme on the Discord where Jeremy was enlisted as as. Uh, <laughs> 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 it sounds crass to talk about it, but I can't even what it, what was it relating to? That was some always sunny, always, wasn't it? It was an always sunny meme where for some reason. Me and Samuel had been listed as as being bitches for some reason. Oh, Mission Impossible! It's Mission Impossible. Oh, that's it. But for some reason, because the meme had three spaces, the third bitch was Jeremy, (laughs) which really made me laugh. That out of nowhere, he's been pulled into this and insulted by this. Yeah, really made me laugh. (laughs) That was something. That was like the photo that I use on social media, which was from my when I got engaged. Like we did an engagement photo shoot, (laughs) and there it is pinned up on that board in the meme with the word bitch. <laughs> it seems reasonable. But again, oh. again, sort of flattering. It was like, 
uh, the, if the community needs to think of a third presenter who isn't one of you, like for me to be the first backup uh, presenter, <laughs> like that's nice. That's a nice thing. It's nice, mm, nice yeah, to exactly. be good to be bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be bitch. Yeah, you know, to put it in like '90s sort of tennis parlance. If me and Matthew are Tim Henman and Greg Rizetsky, then you're very much Barry Cowan, uh, Jeremy. Yeah, so, you I, know. I feel like I'm recording with Phil again. That's exactly the kind of analogy he would make that goes straight over <laughs> my head. <laughs> that's one of the two sports references I can basically make, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and that's it. Um, how's uh, work stuff going? Like uh, you're on the freelance train these days. I imagine you're still very much in demand, given the high quality of your work and your ability to use punctuation. <laughs> Well, thank you. Um, yeah, it's it's going really well. Um, like I, I won't lie, like it's been very tricky for everyone freelancing this last kind of six months to a year. Like not to be too down, but like cost of living crisis and just you know the the money doesn't really kind of match up to that at the moment. But um, mm. I, you know, I've, I've leaned more into the the mock review end of things, which. Uh, is something that you put me onto, Samuel. Can we say that? Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, so that, and, and that's turned out to be something that I really, really like. I think Margaret mentioned that, you know, she'd done some kind of work in that sphere. And it's like, I, I suppose as a journalist, you always hope that your criticism will improve the games you write about on some level, that, you know, that the developers will process it and apply it to the future stuff. But, um, mm. You know, that's sort of a vague hope. Whereas with mock reviews, like they get you in before the game comes out to find out, you know, get an outside eye on on where the game's at. So uh yeah, it's it's pretty rewarding to be able to go, you you need to be aware of this or maybe you could double down on that because that's really cool. And then just sort of back out and let them crack on with it because, you know, I'm no I'm no game developer but hopefully I've I've learned enough over the last decade that it's of, of use to them. Um, for yeah, me to give them uh, some opinions. Yeah, I'm pleased to hear that. I think like uh, part of me giving it to you in the first place was just uh, you know I thought oh Jeremy would thrive in this space, but I know that there are so many things in games where you think oh on the writing side it would be really cool to do X. I just need someone to give me a chance to do X. Yeah, and so once you've opened the door, I'm glad it leads to more stuff. So I think some industry people listen to this, Jeremy. So you know they can get in touch with you if they uh, need your services, particularly I guess. RPG strategy games are those your sort of key areas? Yeah, um, turn-based tactics, all that kind of thing. Uh, First-person shooters. Uh, yeah, I should also say I'm still, you know, doing the journalism, writing for Edge and Rock Paper Shotgun and PC Gamer and stuff. Because I think sometimes if you if you mention you do a new thing, people assume that you stop doing everything else. <laughs> like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm still a journalist, and I also feel yeah. that that's important. Like that's part of the deal with uh, working in mock reviews and stuff. It's like you're supposed to have your hand in and be somebody who can actually say well this is how journalists are likely to respond to this game because i am one Mm. yeah absolutely it's uh yeah it's cool because um i've noticed as well in your regular work obviously you and uh phil awanyuk co-hosted pc gaming classics for us which is uh rolled out on the rolling out on the free feed now and so people are getting to listen to that whole series which is cool um, but I noticed as well that you basically every single game that you covered, you've turned into like a subsequent like opinion feature about that game, which I thought was very <laughs> canny of you. Suddenly there's a Trespasser Jurassic Park piece popping up on, I think it was Rock, Paper, Shotgun. Um, so that's been, it's been lucrative for you all, all around, Jeremy. Yeah, that's that's freelance thinking, definitely. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought, thought of them as companion pieces to uh, 
to the episodes. I think there is, yeah, a published piece for every single one of those episodes um, mm. for, for listeners to hunt down. <laughs> nice. That's a little task for them. Tick them off, kind of Where's Wally style. So, yeah, if I suppose if people want to reach out to you for work, you Jeremy D. Peel on uh, Twitter. Jeremy, is that right? Uh, Jeremy underscore Peel. Uh, ah, there you go. And it's, it's X, actually. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's my mistake. <laughs> it always has okay. been, and they've always been reposts. <laughs> Not retweets. <laughs> yep. So um, we have roped you back in with the uh, enticing promise of eighty pounds to talk about some old RPGs. <laughs> Is so, it eighty now? That's that's amazing. I thought it was forty. Well, that's even better. Well, we're depending on you. We're depending on you to carry this episode, so we kind of up the fee slightly. <laughs> there's, a bit, there's a bit of that going on, honestly. Um, but yes, we're delighted to have you back for that. So um, yeah, I, I suppose like actually before we get into that, how do you feel about being subsumed into the larger Backpage universe, Jeremy? I think you, like you say, you are seen as a sort of like, uh, you know, a th- sort of third lead if there was to be one. Like, um, and people sort of, I don't know, talk about you like you are a fictional character sometimes, and I just wonder how you feel about that. <laughs> it's quite funny, especially because I'm fairly active on the Discord, so to just rock up and like see people having talked about me as a... <laughs> alongside ps1 hagrid is is always funny <laughs> but um i like it because I, I, I like the 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 whole vibe of the back page community so it's not it's not uh it's not frightening to become uh the plaything in the way it might be in another community i guess <laughs> so so far it hasn't been frightening i would say is my uh, my summary of those events <laughs> that's fair how would you rate our interactions with our discord well, I think you know you, you keep a sort of uh, you operate with a healthy disdain for your uh, for your <laughs> listeners, Samuel and uh, Matthew. I don't think you, I don't think you do. I don't think you do do that. You just keep a, a healthy distance, I suppose. Um, whereas, yeah, I, I've, I've got stuck in. Yeah, I sort of I do I do um, I probably shouldn't badmouth them as much as I do on the pod. <laughs> they love it. No, we do. They love it. We do. I feel I feel bad for throwing the tears of the kingdom. Uh, uh, channel under the bus, but you know some channels need to be thrown under a bus. It's all right. We'll get we'll get to RPGs channel. I'll I'll, um, I'll give them what yeah. for later on. It's fine. I, I sort of think um, that very much that whole sort of like Bilbo Baggins are like half as much half you know half of you half as much as you deserve. All that stuff is very much my approach to community management. <laughs> so just like you say, a health, maybe a healthy disdain is probably the best way to put it, Jeremy. So, yes, um, pleased to have you back on the podcast, Jeremy. Was the last time you came on the regular podcast the um, GTA Clones on Trial episode? Uh, yeah, I think it was. Yeah. That was really fun, that one. Yeah. I really enjoyed that one. We should put more um, sort of like uh, naughty genres on trial, Matthew. Let's try and think of some, and then we'll um, we'll litigate that in uh, with Judge Castle. Okay, so this episode, all about RPGs. So, so we're going to try and like cover the sweep of the genre, but we're going to pick up basically where the Infinity Engine RPG starts. So, because we think that's probably the most relevant to our listeners, probably the most interesting games to talk about, and certainly if we're talking about Baldur's Gate three, it's the most relevant place to to sort of focus our discussion. So, a little bit of background: the RPG is one of the oldest genres in games, dating back to university mainframes in the 70s like dungeon and oubliette i know nothing about university mainframes i just read this in a richard cobbett piece on the history of rpgs <laughs> and pc gamer so copying to that straight away i will cite citation it needed <laughs> yeah. um in the 80s the genre became more of a home pc concern with influential dungeon crawler games like rogue and nethack uh, wizardry the game becomes so popular in japan that it inspires the creation of dragon quest and final fantasy a real fork in the road and 
in some ways still is um, defining that genre. You have the Bard's Tale along the way, which is a, another important game in terms of um, terms of setting, um, which uh, was becoming a more pronounced element of these games over time. The Ultima series becomes hugely important because it puts story at the heart of these games and not just monsters and dungeons, which the vast majority of these games were, and pushes that story element further and further with subsequent entries. The genre stagnates outside of its most popular series in the first half of the 90s, and then by the second half of the 90s you have the likes of Fallout in 1997, Baldur's Gate in 1998, with story, branching dialogue, consequences and interesting settings define an era of games that reach a newfound level of popularity. So bit of an overview there which is hopefully useful basically that was my excuse of speeding through about 20 years of history of one genre in about 45 <laughs> seconds so jeremy what was your first exposure to old ass rpgs because listening to the pc gaming classic series i got the impression that a lot of and i think having you on the pod before you discussed this a lot of this for you was sort of like excavation from a kind of like you know historical point of view because you're educating yourself in the in the noughties about this stuff was that was that how you came to rpgs as well yeah i think that's fair uh, by the way i think richard cobbett is our university mainframe he's the keeper of all <laughs> pc gaming history and we would be lost without him at this point um exactly. yeah so I, my first encounter with an rpg was Baldur's gate and it was on my uncle's shelf in his study and that would have been like the very early naughty so at that point it had already been out for a couple of years he had a version with like six discs i think and the expansion in there and um you know i was also happening at that time the lord of the rings film so i was already a lord of the rings kid i'd read the books and uh here was this game where you had a, a wizard who would occasionally pop up who's called Elminster, not Gandalf, but still with a sort of frustrating like lack of frequency, leaving you to your own uh, devices to be nearly killed constantly. And uh, and it, it sort of, to me, really captured that like Fellowship of the Ring style danger in the wilderness and like a sort of desperate hunt for allies on the road and also being wary of, you know, people who were hunting you yeah i I still think like i still have a wariness about anyone who who explicitly uses the word friend as in like hi friend because in Baldur's gate if anybody ever said hello friend they were always an assassin they were always there to kill you uh so that was instilled in me at an early age uh but yeah these games have basically um impinged your ability to to like have nice social relations with people well yeah exactly It, it it allows me to still enjoy real time with pause combat which most people can't but it has inhibited my ability to form connections with fellow human beings so who can say whether that's worse um, <laughs> yeah but yeah that, that game is hugely hugely formative to me and I just kind of clocked that it was as you do you're like okay there are these splash screens that say Atari and Black Isle and Bioware and Dungeons and Dragons and if I see those elsewhere on game boxes i'm probably going to try and get that and try that game uh so right. and and at that point all of those games were at least a couple of years old and they were kind of in budget sections uh and stuff like that so it it became quite feasible to to become a and head digitally in pretty short order yeah absolutely so yes there's um there was like a an explosion of popularity for games off the back of uh, boulder's gate which I think a lot of its success was driven by how it looked as well versus 
previous RPGs that were mostly tile based. This was um, a step up in terms of the sprites on the the very specific type of backgrounds they made for for these games. So that um, came to be a commonality between the Infinity Engine different the Infinity Engine games is just how they how they sort of looked and functioned was um, was what they had in common. So Matthew, when did Baldur's Gate end up being a big deal to you, and how did that sort of happen? Uh, I mean. Cynically, it's probably a bigger deal now because of Baldur's Gate 3 and, and you know, trying to kind of educate myself a bit better. Um, I did play uh, them back in the day, like, with friends. They weren't games, like, I owned, but my friend Dan had them, and um, I never really understood them. Like, one of the big things replaying them now was, like, I was amazed we ever got through them or were able to pass them because there's a lot of like D&D stuff like I I I didn't understand then I don't really understand now but like you know when I when I did my big replay recently I had to rely like very heavily on external guides and people explaining things you know there's just, there's lots of like invisible systems in this game and invisible rules and so yeah I was just like how on, how on earth did this make any sense to me like 20 years ago or whatever but yeah, in terms of like, you know, d- digging deeper into them and actually having kind of like a better appreciation of them, that's definitely a more recent thing. Um, I feel like there's like waves of nostalgia for this. Um, I, I mean, there's always been a nostalgia for it, but like, uh, like a lot of people who played these games when they were kids, who've now grown up and become cool games journalists, are writing lots of good stuff about it. Um, I really liked there was the PC gamer issue which did loads of um like retrospective stuff on borders gate 2 uh, it was like a big well, i don't know if it was it like a cover feature i can't remember how they did it mm. how long ago uh, was this uh in the last last four years okay right so after my time yeah yeah but it was it was it, it, it was basically like a the, the their main feature of that issue was lots of different authors tackling you know different bits of borders gate 2 and um, that just got me like really excited for it again, thinking, oh, I don't have any deep thoughts on this game. I should really revisit this and, and get into it. And that kind of paid off, obviously, with around Baldur's Gate 3, which I was covering quite closely on RPS. So, you know, it's it's probably more of a job thing than, a, than a, like a, you know, I can't claim to have been playing and loving these games for the last 20 years. That's fair enough, yeah. But I think a lot of people's RPG journey starts with Baldur's Gate, I think, to use a crude analogy that'll make Jeremy cringe. I guess it probably did for, you know, for that type of RPG, what Final Fantasy VII did for JRPGs, right? It was an easy touchstone with a really good setting and, you know, defined the genre in a lot of ways for, for a few years to come. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, go on, Jeremy. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's easy to to kind of not see now how how striking it, it would have been at the time, I guess, because it's actually a, a, a really strange sort of hybrid system they came up with for that game like Bioware were playing a lot of Warcraft and to kind of infuse Dungeons and Dragons obviously traditionally this turn-based thing with this sort of real-time isometric thing where you were moving all your guys around in in you know and and it's, it's a very weird sort of you know you're still kind of calculating things turn by turn you can still pause and and do things tactically but it has this sort of immediacy to it which sort of i guess for the first time it was like oh i can see D moving around in a you know a fairly convincing way 
and then yeah once you get onto Baldur's Gate 2 that's where like so much of what we know you know in modern western RPGs of like companions and them bickering with each other and with you and the way that all kind of connects together in quests like that's kind of the form where the formula was first set pretty much so these were the games that allowed the entire genre as we know it to happen afterwards pretty much damn we brought the right guest on for this episode matthew that's good <laughs> um not that any doubt so jeremy did you have much exposure to the early rpgs that were precursors to the infinity engine games the likes of ultima or wizardry did did you pick up that stuff in your education for the uh for, for the genre not at all um like only more recently when i've gone out of my way to kind of figure out you know what they are and and why they were important i think because there was that sort of gap from the early 90s to the mid to late 90s where rpgs weren't really happening that was just ancient history by the time of of Baldur's gate and um you know throughout the 80s there was the 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 bioware and bethesda of the day were you know you had uh, ultima from uh, from origin and and uh, wizardry from surtech like they were the two sort of big deals in in western rpgs and really important but for me th- like i had no connection to them like i remember when um you know divinity original sin came out which we'll get to but um i remember i was really excited about that game because to me it felt like Baldur's gate it had that sort of interactive depth that i'd felt in those games and i said this to i can't remember whether it was uh adam smith who's a lead writer on Baldur's gate 3 but was a journalist at that time or or it might have been Fraser Brown of PC Gamer, and I'd said, oh, it's like Baldur's Gate, and one of them had said, oh, well, Ultima, and me going, oh, right, like, oh, I don't really understand, like, what the primary inspiration of this this game that I now really like is, and I'd better kind of dig it out and uh, and get to grips with it just a little. Oh. Yeah, I think I, I understand why you would have that relationship with the genre though it by getting to Baldur's Gate first because I remember the very first issue of PC Gamer I bought had a preview of Baldur's Gate in it and I think it also had a piece on Ultima Online in it and Ultima Online looks so old as hell even at the time yeah. because obviously it was ambitious in in other ways and was doing a, a lot of other different things but I remember like even then just Ultima what I read about Ultima when I saw it it seemed old hat compared to what Baldur's Gate was it just it seemed like there was a an era change there so even by missing it by a few years I can see why you know it would compl- that would completely bypass you that um you know that part of the genre's legacy so that makes sense to me mm. so Jeremy what do you think drove the success of the Infinity Engine RPGs and why and that generation of RPGs around it. Why did those games in particular become such a big deal? I think partly because of that that immediacy, and they were they told really good stories. Like even when you know it's a the Infinity Engine is one of those where they made Baldur's Gate, Bioware made Baldur's Gate, but kind of you know with um, with Interplayer's publisher and Black Isle sort of in the background. And then Black Isle made their sort of quick spin-off games, which was the Icewind Dale series. And even those are just so much better than they they deserve to be. Like, I remember um, Josh Sawyer saying, and there's some disagreement about the exact timeline, but he said that Icewind Dale 2 is made in like four or five months. Uh, I think if you ask Fergus Urquhart, who was head of Black Isle at the time, he says it's a little bit longer, but like... 
there were there were like a high frequency of these games which were clearly related so it was like they were very sort of well poised to take advantage of the success of Baldur's Gate because they were like well immediately there's um, two or three other games or within a few years there are other games that are clearly function the same way have the same like attention to detail and storytelling um, and also like the Forgotten Realms the setting of Baldur's Gate and Icewind Dale part of the magic of it is that it's so like um, it's kind of this vanilla canvas to that you can apply any sort of uh, Tolkien-esque fantasy adventure to and once you've kind of invested in one you're like oh so I, I get that Icewind Dale is up the road on the Sword Coast from the city of Baldur's Gate and you know Neverwinter Nights is also somewhere along that path and like you sort of develop a history with the with the place and the and the geography of it so I think once you once you connect with one of them then it feels like that's a place that you want to return to and can do mm-hmm. yeah it's a way into that entire it's a way into like a fictional location but also an entire genre that's connected to that fictional location basically yeah I, i'm curious how much of it as well as is, is the success of translating something which is popular in another gaming form successfully into a video game because like a lot of the conversation around borders gate 3 now is coming from the perspective of like the D fan base which is obviously massive and D's had this like huge resurgence um but there's like a lot of excitement about seeing something you love in that game being in the video game whether your character and its weird quirks of its class or whatever are going to be accurately represented and i i wonder i you know it's i don't know if anyone really has an answer to this but i do wonder if there was like a it could ride a similar wave back then um just as a sort of successful sort of translation of things that people seem to understand because you know like i said when i first played it there was loads of stuff i was like i had no idea what this means or like all these strange acronyms you know what the fuck is thaco you know all this kind of stuff yeah. um <laughs> and um but but it must have res- you know just you know looking at the numbers it you know it must have resonated and i'd be curious how much of that was you know if if it was basically doing what Baldur's Gate 3 is doing now but back then in terms of like harnessing that pre-existing fan base yeah I mean yeah like obviously D&D was huge in the in the 80s as as well that's what Stranger Things feeds off and um, I can imagine like you know ev- every game developer working in the 90s and noughties pretty much like has D&D as a core influence as far as I can tell and I, th- right. I can imagine as well that like for players if you, you grow up playing tabletop dungeons and dragons to then have like oh this reasonably accessible digital version which you can play for an hour by yourself and then put down as a as a grown-up um is hugely Mm. appealing and also like anything that you play that involves like models or you know maps and bits of text and stuff like i feel like a part of you is always going it'd be cool to see this come to life in some form like to see these Mm. things move and like i think that's an eternal attraction of video game adaptations of tabletop stuff is like oh my god i can actually see um you know i can actually see that sword being swung Mm. yeah Yeah. i i did also get the slight impression that Baldur's gate was maybe responsible for a partial revival in popularity for D D at the time too so that might Mm. be i got that impression from 
reading a bit around it so that you know that might be one area where it does differ a little bit where obviously like you say Matthew D&D is so popular now that it's it's kind of overtaken any and all all things but certainly like I think that thinking of D&D as an 80s phenomenon that's sort of like how it was presented when people discussed it in the 90s and therefore it would make sense that game developers were playing that in the 80s and then making games in the 90s based on those systems mm. I don't, again I, I you know having not lived it I'm not entirely sure but that was the impression I got that it was at least partly responsible for you know some kind of like boost in fortunes for D&D more generally at the time um Jeremy Planescape Torment is I suppose like the the other game that's worth pulling out here what's your relationship to that game and why does that game in particular have a a reputation apart from other infinity engine games yeah i'm actually less personally connected to planescape torment but like it is a huge it's an important part of the picture i got really into that spiritual successor to it uh torment times of numenera like i really like that and that captures the same kind of like it's a you know there's sort of um a spectrum that you know once boulder's gate existed it's almost as if black Art kind of just played with the dials and they're like okay we'll do uh, a dungeon crawler version which is more about like leaning into the combat and the kind of combat puzzles and the writing is still really good where we have it but it's less about that and that's Icewind Dale and then they pull the dial in the opposite direction like okay this is Planescape Torment and this is about dialogue and that whole I think there's a whole lineage there that sort of ends with the Disco Elysium where it's almost a sort of very choice-driven visual novel uh, kind of end of the end of the genre where and it's not just like dialogue text there are sort of these very deep and prosy descriptions of what you're mm. seeing and what's going on um i think really like the sprite the sprites of it all really lent itself to that kind of literary thing like there's a gap when you play those games between what you see and what plays out in your head because it's you know that basic on screen so you can describe in text in a very sort of novelistic way what's going on and accept Mm. that like okay there's not a lot happening on screen but it's playing out you know in my imagination so yeah i feel like that that is a really important side of the genre which people clearly still have an appetite for yeah, it's interesting as well because um, when I saw, obviously when uh, Torment, Ties of the New Manera, uh, was released, the kind of spiritual successor to Planescape Torment, there was, it seemed like the sheer amount of writing in that game was actually kind of divisive, but with um, Disco Elysium, that approach doesn't, um, it wasn't really critiqued at all because people really enjoyed, maybe they just enjoyed the writing more or... yeah just in so, such a small handful of games to have some that are so combat oriented and then some that are so storytelling oriented it's just really interesting to see that dna split off almost right away you know so uh, I, gu- yeah. I guess that sort of reflects the range of dms though as well right because isn't that that's in in the in these worlds the writers of these games are your kind of imaginary dm that you're playing with and different people are going to play different kind of games so i kind of it, it makes it sort of makes sense that there would be a spread of angles on this yeah yeah Yeah. with some dms being very like stats driven and and focused on the rules and others you know treating D &D as like it's a tool for the imagination and we can dip into these the dice and stuff as and when we need it um but it's Mm. it's just an assist for 
um, what we're all kind of conjuring in our heads together. In parallel, you had the explosive success of uh, Blizzard's Diablo. I read a piece, Jeremy, that you wrote where Larian talked about how it was only possible to get ARPGs made for a while and there just wasn't the appetite for anything anything else. Like, What consequence do you think that had on the RPG landscape? The piece is really good, by the way. It's about, I think it was about how Ultima 7 informed um larian's games and how mm. there's um they try and put a piece of that game in every in every game but um yeah the uh the, the diablo side of things how did that sort of filter into the genre do you think yeah i th- i think well for one thing Baldur's gate and diablo kind of blew up at this yeah at this at the same time as you say and but diablo blew up bigger <laughs> um mm. i feel like th- rooted at the root of this is a sort of fundamental unfortunate disconnect between these two games or like they look similar if you look at like um you know a story driven D based rpg of the time and you look at diablo especially if you're a publisher you're like well this is this isometric thing where you hit things with swords and couldn't we steer it more in the direction of this you know this version that makes more money but then you know they're also completely f- different in their aims like you know, Diablo being this sort of uh, Skinner box kind of very immediate satisfaction driven combat box. Like obviously, there's there's huge depth to Diablo and rewards that keep people playing it for thousands of hours. But it's so different from the kind of slow burn, choice and consequence, um, prepare your spells and have a nice long rest uh, end of RPGs. <laughs> like these are not not closely related at all, really. Um, so I think it was kind of a toxic influence on Western RPGs for a little while, through no fault of Blizzards, obviously. Like they're just making the the cool game they want to make, and there's a huge audience for. But yeah, a developer like Larian, who hasn't made a game before, and has to just kind of take what they get from a publisher. If they say, "Cool, look, strip out the heart of this and make it more like." Diablo, then that's what they have to do. That's what was going on at that time. But Larian, I think they're they're kind of like quite an interesting studio, and you know, not not you know their their earlier games weren't massive by any means. But I think they actually do like marry the two styles. Like while they're working in the mm. action RPG space, you know, I think Divine Divinity had it had some of the elements that you would recognise in their later games. You know, it has like conversation trees and branching quests and like weird interactions it has the kind of reactivity that they've now become known for which you'd maybe associate more with like the rpg side of things yeah or even there's that like there's that weird strand of like immersive sim um which also kind of like it kind of emerges from all this this space but um yeah i kind of like I don't know. I, I I'm not like hugely familiar with Larian's early games, but like I familiarised myself with them, you know, in in the in the wake of them being a modern success and trying to work out like you know what they're about. And I actually kind of wish I had played them back in the day because some of them sound quite cool, like the way they mix those two things. Yeah, like absolutely. There's like in Divine Divinity, you can kind of like stack crates in the environment, and it has that sort of like the the Ultima Seven influence on on Sven uh, Sven Vinka is like that's that side of it where it is like yeah there's this kind of dense environment that you can you can muck about with like that there's definitely some of that even at the beginning of larian's games um mm. but then you also get these kind of incredibly long and uh, drawn out um 
action RPG dungeons at the same time. I remember um, mm. I played um, Divine Divinity after I'd just written my dissertation at university and I'd like denied myself games for a few months. I was like, I, to get this <laughs> to get this degree to where I want it to be, I just got to des- deny myself pleasure for a little while. <laughs> I just <laughs> didn't play anything. And once I'd handed it in, you know, that, those moments where you finish a big project and there's a weird sense of loss and also numbness and you're like, I don't really, how do I, what do I do now? And then I decided I'd play Divine Divinity through and I spent like two weeks doing nothing but playing this game and eventually came to the conclusion that I hadn't been enjoying myself. <laughs> like I didn't, I'd forgotten how to have fun. I was like, is this good? Is this a good game? I don't know. Um, so like that game is entirely tied up in that experience for me. Um, so I think it's a, a deeply flawed like um, concept because of that sort of the way it's tangled in in Diablo, but also like I'm probably a poor judge of it because I, it was such a weird time for me to play that game. Right. <laughs> wow. It's it's a weird one though because I feel like while Baldur's Gate that that lineage yields loads of games that people love and still talk about. Diablo, I feel like there aren't really Diablo likes from the time or at least throughout the noughties that I feel like people talk about or that have a reputation now. Whereas, you know, weirdly you have to get to more of the like post Diablo three time for that. So that to yield to things like destiny or, you know, or a path of exile where you actually, there are actually like good Diablo likes uh, around now, but I don't know. Are there any other games like Diablo from the late '90s or early '90s that really stuck, Jeremy? Or was, yeah. were they just the only ones? There was Dungeon Siege. That was pretty big. Yeah. Um, right. Funnily enough, Dungeon Siege was killed off by Obsidian. <laughs> they did uh, like they were given Dungeon Siege Three, which is really good, but they were like almost steering it back the other way towards their quality. So like, we'll make this very story heavy. Uh, <laughs> world building uh, infused uh, Dungeon Siege and I was like this is great and uh, I don't think that's what Dungeon Siege fans need or want from that game if there are any Dungeon Siege fans remaining but yeah that sort of died off in the uh, noughties and 2010s I think Jerry do you think that all games from that era were built equally or do we remember the ones that truly matter uh, I guess there weren't that many of them like like the most of the ones we remember are most of the ones that there were. Like there wasn't a huge amount of kind of mimicry of what Bioware and Black Hole were doing. But there were other games that like Interplay was putting out. Like uh, there's one called Lionheart that nobody ever talks about, which is kind of shooting for a similar kind of deal and didn't really work out. But um, you know there was there was kind of a a period where a quite brief period where. Black Isle and Bioware were firing on all cylinders and putting out this stuff and then um, it dried up pretty quickly. I think Divine Divinity is one of those games that like gets a lot of attention or it would come up in discussion of um, of Infinity Engine style games because by 2002 there weren't really any others like that. They weren't really being made by that point. Um, there were like kind of spin-offs for, um, from uh, Black Isle as well, like Troika is, is you know, an important RPG developer and they, they you know, is fo- founded by the leads on the original Fallout 
uh, they left and made um, the first thing they made was Arcanum, which is a game that plays a lot like the original Fallout, but in a in a like high fantasy world. So there's stuff going on, but um, I don't feel like maybe it just simply wasn't kind of it was a hit, but it wasn't. Baldur's Gate was a hit, but it wasn't a hit on the level that it caused the industry to kind of steer towards it at that time. There didn't seem right. to be like that kind of influx of of Baldur's Gate clones. Yeah, so you have Interplay go out of business around this time too. So you have uh, a Fallout sequel called Van Buren and a Baldur's Gate game called The Blackhound, I believe, that just sort of like basically die, either in production or pre-production. Jeremy, why do you think those types of games eventually waned in popularity? Or, you know, why did the genre, I guess, have to have to change after a certain point? Uh, 3D, I think, basically. Like, <laughs> it's... Our old favorite. <laughs> Uh, at the time when 3D gaming was happening it was such a kind of like transformative thing that if you were working in 2D or you know something kind of relatively flat seeming like an isometric RPG then you were kind of automatically passe at that moment and um, you know developers as a whole pretty much had to pivot to um you know, this is happening in the point-and-click adventure genre and all sorts of places where they kind of worked out very sophisticated ways of making these games, and they have been at the a sort of peak of their, um, their powers. And then 3D came along, and these genres had to rework themselves. Um, and there's a very sort of painful moment in, you know, the Western RPG's history where it's like, well, it can't be this literary... Um, incredibly open-ended thing anymore because we've got to um, render these sort of high detail 3D scenes as many of them as we can and you know it, it suddenly looks bizarre to like have a Planescape Torment where you're describing this kind of intricate action that's unfolding in front of you and you're like well I can't see it because we they couldn't animate it because there are too many scenes to have uh, custom animations for all these scenes like it just becomes a, like a huge sort of like technical uh challenge or impossibility really to like create the same kinds of stories in in early 3d gaming and there's no like financially there's no way at that moment to keep making the isometric ones yeah, and I think there's some. I think some of this, the games of the genre do struggle to make the transition to 3D. I think isn't Ultima Nine a famously duff attempt to to do this quite early? Jeremy, are you familiar with that, with that game? Yeah, I think only through like yeah, it's it's reputation as a duffer. I don't think I've ever even seen a screenshot of uh, of Ultima <laughs> Nine. I mean, there's like obviously around that time as well. Uh, in fact, no, that's way beforehand. But like Ultima had arguably made a very successful early transition into 3D when. Um, Looking Glass made all Underworld, and they were like, you can sort of argue, I suppose, that like immersive sims were like a 3D wing of RPGs that had already grown out of them. Um, mm. But yeah, like sort of mainline RPGs turning into 3D was like was a difficult process, and I think it took like you know the better part of a decade for that to become really sort of comfortable and sort of uncompromised. So when RPGs do reach the noughties, what happens to them? What does when does the form start to take a different shape? And I guess it sounds like it's necessary that they did because players' expectations changed. But what happens basically to this whole genre when when you know we reach the say like 
PS2, Xbox era and the the a time of more sophisticated 3D graphics. Yeah, I mean, it all kind of hinges on Bioware during this period, doesn't it? It's like whatever Bioware does, that's where the genre goes. And um, you had Neverwinter Nights, which was this kind of like halfway point between the Infinity Engine games and uh, and what came afterwards, where it's 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 3D, um, but it's still very much rooted in this like it's a translation of a tabletop game, but it's also maybe influenced by what's going on in in MMOs at that time. Like it's a there's a big sort of multiplayer focus, uh, and then you have Knights of the Old Republic, where like that's the first sort of big 3D success in Western RPGs. That and Morrowind, I guess. It's interesting, if you play Knights of the Old Republic, you're like, okay, there's still, like, D&D under the hood here. Like, there's a basic, like, D&D stat system, and when you play the combat, it's still that kind of real-time with Paul Stink where you see your characters wait a few seconds for their turn and then do a front flip and hit a, you know, a, a pig man with tusks in the face. <laughs> um, so you can kind of see, like, it's, like, this slow transition, even from, like, the the genre leader at the time um and yeah and then in tandem like bethesda in a way like perfectly set up for this transition because they'd been working in very sort of crude 3d for a long time and so when they have morrowind which is just kind of like the latest iteration of their thing like that is kind of well placed to be a hit on xbox yeah, and you know, you've, you've talked very eloquently about the history of like early history of Xbox on this podcast, and that whole thing where Microsoft were just very smart to like put energy into transporting leading PC developers onto console. Like that's when that starts, and you have Knights of the Old Republic and Morrowind as two surprise RP Western RPG hits on console, where previously that's the home of Japanese RPGs and PC is the home of Western RPGs and like that's pretty much you know a, a strict divide that's an important moment where like these games are still transitioning into 3D slightly uncomfortably but they're finding um, a huge new multi-platform audience at the same time absolutely it's funny because I think that anytime that someone recommends Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic to someone they should put the caveat in of let me tell you what happens in this combat before you play it because <laughs> you you will not you will not be swinging a lightsaber, my friend. Just to make that very clear, yeah. <laughs> you will politely um, ask a man to swing a lightsaber, you know, one time after another, while you um, you know you kind of manage some other stuff and a load of dice rolls happen. That's that's the thing I think that um, that you say is it is a bit odd that it's almost like yeah, it's using d and d stuff under the hood but the uh the experience is presentationally like you know obviously quite far further ahead than um boulder skate was so, yeah it's the equivalent of yeah. when you when you tell your sim to load the dishwasher after he's taken the bins out um <laughs> but for lightsabers that's how that works <laughs> so yeah you're not swinging your lightsaber now but oh in, in 20 seconds just you ooh, wait it's gonna be great <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's funny as well because I I remember playing Morrowind with a friend at the time, and we were very pumped for it because we'd read about you know this cool sort of mature fantasy RPG with quite a strange setting, and then we were so underwhelmed because just because the it was such a rough version of what the Bethesda RPG experience would become with Oblivion and Fallout, it was such a like 
it was just it it felt trapped between console and pc it didn't feel totally at home there it was just us getting like absolutely brutalized by small mud crabs over and over again and just thinking <laughs> how will we ever make headway in this and then eventually just giving up and popping uh assault on the control room and halo on because that's all that's all our 14 year old brains <laughs> could handle yeah um, the water looked amazing yeah. though eh brilliant water in that <laughs> game yeah, that like Morrowind had a similar syndrome to Knights of the Old Republic, thinking about in that like combating that, you directly swing your sword or fire your bow, and then the maths decides whether you've hit or not. <laughs> and you're like, right. I think that's such a that was such a turnoff for people at the time. It's like there's clearly more going on here, and it's worse than you know. It's it's an acceptable sort of discomfort when you're playing an isometric RPG and you're like, well, obviously I'm not that guy down there. I'm <laughs> I'm steering that guy and telling him what to do. But then when you are the person, but you're still beholden to this kind of like unseen rule set that's like, ah, although you uh, you aim correctly, uh, your character is is insufficiently uh, skilled to have made that hit. Like that's a really uncomfortable transition point for these games. We've covered the, like the I suppose like the. The sort of attempt to make these more of a multi-format concern, Jeremy. What about um, watch what else Troika were doing on PC? Because those those games obviously didn't come to console, so they were maybe on a slightly different track. What's what's their journey in the noughties? Yeah, so they they throughout their existence, basically, like there was no money in RPGs uh, of the kind they were making. They just sort of like struggled on like throughout their entire existence. But like they made Arcanum, which incredibly impressive game in some respects, like. You can still find videos on YouTube and Arcanum. It's like you throw a Molotov cocktail in a bar and every NPC reacts in a different way according to their AI and who they are in the world. Like, oh my God, like the dream. Um, But at the same time, it's like pretty much like that's like the only bar in the world because there's this huge fantasy world and it's made by uh, a very small team who can't afford to bring more people onto the project. So it's, it's also very sparse. Yeah, and that you know the obviously the other sort of really big thing that lasting game that Troika made was um, Bloodlines, the Vampire the Masquerade game, um, mm. which you know as many people have sorted out, have pointed out, is effectively an immersive sim. Like they were, you know, they were they were pushing to adapt. Like they used the Source Engine that um, Half Life Two was built on arguably a little too early to be using that engine like i think it caused them a lot of problems and they they were you know like they were working to make a first person rpg which made sense in this kind of new age um and it turned out quite a lot like a sort of very buggy deus ex essentially and is uh (laughs) beloved for that reason um so they were doing like experimental important things um but they never really had their their breakthrough moment um and yeah i think at the time they were finished off they were they were working on kind of resurrecting something like fallout at a time where there was nothing like it um right yeah so it's, it's reading about troika is always pretty sad but quite inspiring <laughs> they're one of those studios um although you know the, the leads who of that studio kind of you know landed on their feet and have done well for themselves since it's kind of a studio that has a special place in the hearts of uh, of RPG fans, I think. 
Okay, so um, we're going to take a short break after one last question. So, Jeremy, you've been on trial in the Discord for your war on Japanese RPGs. What's all this about? Because <laughs> I genuinely miss this discourse. Uh, so I don't hate Japanese RPGs, but I, I, there's a so there's an RPG channel in the Discord, right? It's called RPGs, and for for months it's been exclusively exclusively dedicated to Japanese RPGs. And that's right. that's fine. There's an implicit understanding there that that's what it's about. But I objected to the fact that it was called RPGs and nobody had mentioned uh, The Witcher or, or Baldur's Gate in like six months. <laughs> and really, it's it's not the discourse. It's not the discourse fault. It's rooted in this whole, you know, sort of terminology problem of what an RPG is. Like an RPG is Baldur's Gate or it's Diablo or it's Final Fantasy, and these things have, like, inherently different design philosophies. Like, I, I have right. to be honest, like, I grew up with PC gaming, and the first time I saw a JRPG, I was I was horrified by the way it operated. Like, <laughs> the, the, I was like, the, nobody has had the ability to make a choice for, like, 40 minutes, you know? It's, it's all kind of just kind of plays out at the whim of the, the developer. And... Uh, mm. And since then, you know, like I've, I've had a lovely time with with Persona Four and, and Nino Cooney, and I and I enjoy them for what they are. Um, but it is it is quite shocking when you come to realise like there's a whole other set of people for whom RPG means something utterly different and kind of the almost the antithesis of what you know them to be. Like quite yeah. quite a hard thing to get over. I will say though that when you were talking about Persona Four and Nino Kuni, there it did have the vibe of one of my best friends as a Japanese RPG. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it used to it used to happen with action RPGs as well. Like I have a distinct memory of being in the uh, the room of one of uh, my mates at uni, and he had a friend of a friend over, and it, and this guy said he really liked Baldur's Gate, and I was like, oh, Baldur's Gate. We we're just starting to enthuse, and our mutual friend was sat in the middle. And he just suddenly looked really dour and upset. I was like, "You're right," and he was like, "No, no, you're not talking about the same game." <laughs> and it turned out his friend had uh, meant Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance, which is a right. Diablo clone. And I, I, I was talking about my Baldur's Gate, and we thought we'd <laughs> formed a personal connection, and in fact, we couldn't be further apart. Funny, that's <laughs> happened at work recently, because obviously Baldur's Gate 3 is coming to PS5, and um, talking to some of my colleagues about it, and they're like, oh yeah, Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate, you know, the, you know running through the running through the really reactive puddles and all that, yeah. and it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Dark Alliance, that's, that's going to be, you're in for quite a different time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I suppose that, I suppose those probably were among the, mo- the most successful uh, Diablo alikes from the time because they just occupied the console space. But yeah, that was just a game about killing lots of rats and breaking barrels with a, a little knife. That's uh, my memory of that game. It was. Yeah. Did they do an action RPG of the Bard's Tale as well? They did, and I think it's in the Dark Alliance engine. In fact, or like right. it's very, it plays very, very similarly. Um, mm. But yeah, it's a very weird period where you have like Brian Fargo, who was head of Interplay and had made the Bard's Tale and greenlit Fallout and Baldur's Gate and, and like, in the noughties, that, that was what he was making. It was, mm-hmm. uh, like, sort of Dark Alliance, uh, but in my license. Um, right. Yeah, very strange uh, period. Um, yeah. But, yeah. but, you know, JRPGs and Disco, I think we've worked it out now. We, we have a system where each morning somebody says... Uh, 
at dawn in the in that channel western rpgs exist uh <laughs> hello jeremy and then everyone moves on with their day and talks about uh persona it, no. but it kind of it does also make sense at that period though in terms of like what games can work on what machines where you know you have to have a dark alliance on ps2 because you know you probably haven't got the control or interface or like fidelity of graphics to be able to kind of do it properly on console so you end up with these weird spin-offs and maybe that is just why you know jrpgs can be their best self on consoles in this period yeah which is probably why so many people kind of associate them or that is their experience of the whole genre yeah the the way people talked about console gaming versus pc game back then was so it was a completely different world it was like if we want to translate an experience for console we need to start from scratch and build it completely mm-hmm. differently. Although and this came up in the Discord recently, it's it's really strange how uh, wizardry in the eighties was like a huge crossover hit in Japan and ends up being like a really formative um, deal for Final Fantasy and you know really big JRPGs. It's, and I guess it does make you realise these things did have the same starting point. They just evolved utterly separately to the point where someone who's grown up on one couldn't get their head around the other well it's a bit like how over in japan they have some people have like kfc for their christmas dinner (laughs) yeah really old tradition and you're like well this is fundamentally we're starting from the same place we have kfc you have kfc yeah it's just where they took kfc was very different yeah (laughs) as with kfc and wizardry it's just rooted in somebody had an unusually successful marketing campaign at one time yeah right (laughs) yeah well actually i should say with the discord stuff i feel like i'm the bad influence there jeremy because i'm the one who's you know, washed the the Discord um, down with like uh, hosed it down with Waka memes and other cursed Final Fantasy X contents. <laughs> That's on me. But the other thing is that Japanese RPGs and Western RPGs have landed in the same place, basically, which is mm. <laughs> um, open worldish third person action games. So they all somehow ended up taking the same track. Now, obviously, that's probably because games became much more sort of globalized in the noughties and 2010s so that that kind of makes sense but yeah in a way they did um they did kind of converge again so that's um that's that's interesting um should we take a quick break and then come back and talk about some more modern games sounds good Welcome back to the podcast. So, we're going to talk about some more contemporary RPGs here and get to some Baldur's Gate 3 chatter, as I know Matthew's been playing that. Actually, Jeremy, I forgot to ask you, have you been playing it? <laughs> I have, yeah, yeah. I've uh, I played about a day's worth of it. Um, I've kind of chose not to review it. I feel like it's a game I'm going to be playing over months and years rather than days and weeks. Okay. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, we can definitely get stuck into that game. Okay, good. Yeah, I think people want to hear our takes on that. So we'll, uh, yeah, let's um, talk a little bit more about the genre. We'll get to that. So, Jeremy, is there a specific game or moment when RPGs take on a more modern form and take a step closer to becoming action games rather than just RPGs? Is is Morrowind like the the key turning point here, or does it happen a little bit later? There's Morrowind and there's Knights of the Old Republic, but I guess um, Mass Effect is the biggie, right? <clears throat> right. That's where they incorporate Gears of War essentially into the RPG which nobody had attempted to do anything like previously. And RPGs sort of finished their transition from 
uncomfortable halfway house with turn-based elements too. Um, this is something with sort of deep storytelling and companions and all of that stuff that comes from Baldur's Gate 2, but it is a comfortable console action game at the same time. For me, Mass Effect was a fun but also kind of like moment of loss where I kind of noticed everything having come from the starting point of Baldur's Gate. It felt like a, a moment of taking stock of like uh, everything that's been stripped out up till this point and um you know mm. bioware had done this amazing um sort of encounter design for these battles where you would pause and you'd get absolutely flattened by your opponent and then you would go away and like prepare spells to counter them and then you know live out these very tactically deep fights whereas in mass effect it's like okay this is a fairly average version of what's happening in third person shooters and we've kind of turned our back on this this very sophisticated thing that we'd worked out before. Um, yeah. Obviously, that's not how I feel today because those things live elsewhere. But at the time, there was mm. no indie space. There was nowhere but the mainstream for RPGs. And they'd become this big budget, very impressive thing. But there wasn't room for D&D depth and, like interactivity in the environment that people like Larian were really invested in. It just wasn't happening. Right. Do you think that Mass Effect kind of dooms Dragon Age as well? Because I think EA acquires uh, Bioware at, around the time of the original Mass Effect and so and Dragon Age Origins is already in the post basically and then they release it, it comes to console in a slightly awkward form but that was kind of like the last vestige of, you know, the old Bioware, basically. And then Dragon Age 2 becomes something closer to Mass Effect in terms of being an all-out kind of action game. Do you think that the success of Mass Effect is basically seals the fate of um, of Bioware making those sorts of games? Maybe, yeah. Like, you know, if you've played Dragon Age Origins, you know what Baldur's Gate 2 is like. Like, it's very faithful to that experience. Um, in how the world works, what the companions are like, and for the most part, how the combat works as well. And Dragon Age, you know, that first Dragon Age really was a hangover of like, I remember checking the Bioware site regularly for Dragon Age updates in like, I want to say like 2005 or something like that. It's maybe too early, mm. but like at a point where, no, no, maybe earlier than that, where Neverwinter Nights was recent history and it was like, what's the next step? For Bioware to to build on on these D and D type things, and they'd sort of you know they weren't leaning on the D and D license anymore. They were building their own world for it, but you could see it was the continuation of of this stuff, and that's that's what Origins was. But then after that, yeah, it's kind of like Dragon Age is a really weird series where it's never had like an easy sequel. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. every time it's had this painful reinvention, and. Um, I think is it Mike Laidlaw, who was in charge of a lot of the Dragon Age stuff at the time, described that development team as like a roaming pirate ship. And you can really feel <laughs> that. It's like every time a Dragon Age game has come out, you're like, okay, it's a completely different thing again. Like there, there are lots of different, th you know, lots of elements that connect them together. But um, Origins never had its like um, post Baldur's Gate moments where there were, you know, Icewood Dale or what have you it just it was itself and then yeah it was sort of back to the drawing board to to come up with a way to um um to follow it up uh, i think partly mm. because ea didn't give 
Bioware any time to make Dragon Age 2. It's like they made the first one over several years and then the second one in 18 months or something like that. So like, okay, yeah. we have to radically reinvent this, keep it to one location, which, you know, is a very smart idea if you know you can't do the same thing again with the time you have. But it does obviously have, have consequences in terms of the, the scope of that game and um, lots of Hawk's life events occurring in one warehouse by the docks, basically. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. Under combat in that game does like at the time was controversial because it, it kind of severed its ties with the the D&D thing that had been in, in Baldur's Gate. Yeah. I was always curious to know what console players who never had any exposure to older RPGs made of Dragon Age Origins because you look at it running on 360 and it looks like quite an ugly game and it's and then you get to it on PC and you scroll out with the wheel and you're like, oh, this is how it's actually meant to be seen. You're not meant to be over the shoulder all the time looking at this you're meant to be able to like see everything and move around the map and and get a, like a, a bird's eye perspective of things it wasn't made to be looked at like it is mass effect basically but that's what the console version kind of did so uh, yeah yeah and it, yeah. it felt on console more like a continuation of like the knights of the old republic thing because of that perspective and you were, mm. you could kind of hop between the characters you could were controlling but yeah it wasn't that sort of like tactical overview that you associate with Baldur's Gate and stuff like that. And yeah, it was a very muddy, <laughs> quite ugly game for the time. Like, it was almost a hit, despite some quite severe and obvious drawbacks, I think. So, Matthew, you say something? Uh, I say it's, it's one of the interesting things with Baldur's Gate 3 coming to PS5, because when you play it with a PS5 controller, like the default move, it, it's a lot more like Dragon Age on console. You yeah. Know, it pulls you, like, right down into the game. And actually... It, it just having like direct control over that character it feels like a very different game I mean, the difference is you can pull the you can zoom out basically and if you want to you can you can play with a uh, analog stick guided uh, cursor control um so it's like best of both worlds but it is it is wild what a what a camera shift and oh yeah slightly different mode of 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 character movement can do to a game in terms of like just how you perceive the whole thing it's yeah quite quite interesting i'm interested to see where people land on that in terms of how they feel about the the ps5 version in fact i i yeah, never so. sorry i never quite um finished dragon age origins on console because um there's a story mode right before the final battle where you can lose a companion um, permanently, which is very Baldur's Gate 2, by the way. Um, but I had that happen. And then in the final battle, which takes place over quite a, like, splayed out area, I needed, like, I needed my characters to stay in certain positions to hold them and they just wouldn't do it. It's on console, it's like, oh, you're playing this character, therefore the the AI controls the others and at a certain point they'll just sort of come back towards you and I was very like conscious of the fact that I was like, if I was playing this on PC, I'd be able to finish this fight, and now I can't. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I struggled through it because uh, the bit is it the lands meet that occurs before the final battle, Jeremy. Yeah, that yeah. was a- an absolute fucking disaster for me. Like, everyone <laughs> turned on me, and I was like, okay, I fundamentally did not understand this game, and have now completely fucked it. And then I just remember it being me fighting the whatever the big dragon was called something spawn something like that i can't remember now but um i just stood very far away with a bow and arrow which i hadn't had any like upgrades in because i've been focused on melee combat but that was pointless because 
against the dragon. It was just going to fuck you up at close range. Just for two and a half hours, <laughs> firing piddly arrows from a distance to try and kill this thing. And I thought, I'm. I, it was such an underwhelming end to an epic adventure where <laughs> I had treated it firmly like Mass Effect, where I was it, completely invested in the companions and developing those relationships with no real perception of what was going on in the larger arc or the or um or the progression system so i just yeah i just remember thinking how could i've completely shat the bed in the last 10 percent of this game yeah here we are firing so. your 200th arrow like if i'd been a better politician i wouldn't be here right now <laughs> yeah exactly if i'd have even been aware of the the concept of uh of what was going on at the lands meet maybe this would be so bad <laughs> um so i suppose like jeremy you we've kind of talked about it there already a little bit but you have Elder Scrolls and Fallout and The Witcher in their modern form setting like sort of like a new bar in terms of popularity of this genre but obviously the form of what they are changes quite a lot and they've merged in some ways with the open world genre at the same time. What do you make of that as a development of the RPG as someone who felt like Mass Effect turned its back on something you were quite invested in? Yeah, I mean it, it kind of it makes sense to a degree where like you look at the original Baldur's Gate and Fallout and they are sort of open worlds, like patchwork of like discrete areas that you visit, but like you can go in any direction on this kind of overworld map. So it's always been part of the fantasy of these games. But obviously the form that they take in The Witcher or, or Fallout is, is very different. And I love those games like for what they are. Um, they're brilliant. But um, yeah... It's, I, I feel like it's not necessarily a net gain for RPGs to have gone open world. You know, it's um, these are games which are supposedly about how, you know, the decisions you make with your character in, in the world change things. And when they're 150-hour open worlds, there's necessarily a bit less of that, like... There's, there's more pressure on developers to create content to fill the whole thing. And I think very few players, to be honest, go back and try like a second playthrough. Like it's just not really realistic. So you, you do lose some of that element of choice and consequence. Like the difference between Witcher 2 and Witcher 3, where you can't, you couldn't have that second act of the Witcher 2 that, you know, splits into completely different um, parts um, you can't have that mm. in an open world because that doesn't make sense. Like you've got to fill two different areas of the map instead and have them both available to the player at one time. So I think someone will eventually do that and it will be mind blowing. Yeah, yeah. And it'll probably be Larian. Uh, but yeah. yeah. Well, the di- when I talked to the Dying Light 2 guys for the edge cover feature, they, they were very much into like, you know, The Witcher 2 is kind of like the, the gold standard for us in terms of like you know audacious consequences and we want to do that in our open world city and they definitely had i don't know if you've played dying Light yeah Two. oh yes of course yeah, you have, yeah. You. yeah um you know there are a couple of things where like big regions can change but they i actually felt like they came sort of so late in the game and the actual change didn't really amount to a huge amount like it was visually like quite a, quite a lift which was impressive but i didn't feel like you know like mechanically or narratively much was going on with that yeah 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 i agree it didn't quite come off in dying light 2 did it but like there are some really impressive moments where allies become enemies and stuff like that 
Yeah, I feel like well, like when you you, you can reveal that like sunken region of the map. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, on that note, it feels like the real sort of positive of RPGs going open world is that it's connected them more to the other kind of leading genres of of the day. And um, you know, when when Assassin's Creed decided to become The Witcher, like that's a very significant moment. And um, mm. and I think now when developers make open world games there's a lot more onus on them to invest in writing teams and deep world building and dialogue and that's happened because of uh, western rpgs going open world i think you know it's happened because of the witcher 3 uh and like that is a that is a gain for for all of us i think in what like in how open world games are to play um yeah and it's much better than that period in the noughties where everyone just tried to copy Knights of the Old Republic and have binary moral decisions uh, at the end of their action games. Like, this is a much more uh, substantial and, and meaningful addition. Army of Two, kill the... Was it not... What was the animal Yeah, you could kill in Army of Two? <laughs> I don't know. Do you remember that? <laughs> the Army of Two sequel had like, a, had, like, moral decisions throughout it, and there was one way you had to, like... It was like, do you kill this like endangered elephant or not in a zoo? <laughs> Sounds very avoidable, doesn't it? Really, it's like I <laughs> yeah. choose not to go to the zoo. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Like I think getting to the end of the Force Unleashed two, and then I think you can choose to either go Jedi or Sith, and then like one of the choices mean makes a clone of you who is a Sith turn up and kill your main character. I think that was quite <laughs> um, very strange time. So I do agree that it's. Uh, the investment in world building is um is better than um is better than arbitrary choices even if i don't necessarily read every codex entry that comes as part of that world building yeah. um yeah so i suppose jeremy something else that happens in the early part of the 2010s is a spurt of kickstarter and crowdfunded projects that tap into nostalgia for the infinity engine era starting with well i suppose this is this is like a, a, you know years before but wasteland 2 was the first of these games but then pillars of eternity was the um was the big one mm. from obsidian why was this era of revival so short-lived and why were there limited successes in this space yeah yeah it's a, new, a really interesting one because it felt like it did sort of open up um the indie space for rpgs um but yeah to look at a developer like obsidian where it almost felt like everyone knew the the sort of platonic great obsidian game like what it would be but they were always as a a big contractor like in conversation with publishers it's always like a negotiation of what they could make and how polished they could make it um and then it felt kind of like at that moment like oh my god like they've got this direct connection with players um and so they can they can make this classic rpg you know this is the the developer that grew from black isle and icewind dale and and here they are doing it again i guess wasn't what wasn't immediately obvious to us at that point was that players in a Kickstarter scenario are their own publisher in a way. You know, they are their own stakeholder with their own strong set of opinions. And Josh Sawyer has talked about Pillars of Eternity since, and you know, he directed those games and did a fantastic job. But he's somebody who has worked on, you know, he worked on these games back in the nineties on the Icewind Dale games on that cancelled Black Hound game and has lots of ideas of how you would push that form forward. And 
Pillars of, of Eternity was not the place to do that because the pitch was nostalgia. Because, uh, you know, understandably, players who opted into that, they wanted everything to resemble Baldur's Gate. They wanted it to, to function in the same way. And, you know, they, like, Obsidian had an implicit mandate to fulfill that and not take it forward. Um, right. And I, th- I think that's part of why... You know, Pills of Eternity 2 was not a hit. And I think people, you know, human beings, we don't always know. We think we know what we want, but uh, if we can actually <laughs> sort of uh, state that desire very specifically and then we get it, and they're like, okay, well, I've sort of had my fill of that now. Um, there wasn't really, I think, like the appetite was, was pretty much sated, like surprisingly quickly. Um, and mm. yeah. I feel like the really interesting game from that period is Tyranny, which is the... I guess that was the Icewind Dale 2 Pillars is Baldur's Gate, and that it used the same engine, but took it in a different... to a different place. Like, Tyranny is quite a short RPG, and it's set in a very unusual world where, essentially, Sauron has already won, and uh, you are, like, a, a kind of lowly lieutenant in his army... It's almost like a sort of Judge Dredd figure. Uh, I'm mixing a lot of references here, but hopefully, they're, <laughs> hopefully they're useful. Um, but yeah, like it's you're 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 living and working in like an evil bureaucracy, and you're basically if you want to be good in that world, you're finding small acts of good which you can kind of sneak through um, because that's not really your job. You know, you're supposed to uphold this. Um, this state which is um this sort of horrible centralized monster and uh, and there are all sorts of weird little interesting stories in that game like you know you find merchants who are in trouble because one year they're they're allowed to sell grain and then the command comes down the next year and they've got to sell steel and they're like well i don't know how to get steel so i'm i'm, I'm stealing it from somewhere and then you have to decide whether this guy gets in trouble and um really fascinating companions too like there's one guy who um is a soldier who'd been caught in a storm um create magical storm created by this sauron figure i think they're called edicts in the world and um he's been trapped inside his armor and so there's a kind of side quest of the game where you're, you're trying to figure out whether you can help get this guy out of his armor and he lives inside it constantly and it's established that it stinks like oh, he's just he's taking his shit in there he's he's just like sealed in and uh oh. like that that couldn't happen in pillars because it's like it's got to be kind of forgotten realmsy D. but it was really interesting to see what obsidian did when they could kind of let loose with that form and do something brave with it it was just a man in a load of shit filled <laughs> yeah that's the, that's what the that's what the people want it turns out um but yeah um so I, I feel like you know there were there were sort of long term gains from that period. Like it sort of helped establish the the sort of pipeline of modern isometric RPGs. And now you have like the Pathfinder games, and it's Owlcat who make those, right? And they they're doing this Warhammer one coming up. Oh yeah, Rogue Trader. Yeah, yeah, can't wait That's for that. Amazing. That. Have you played the Pathfinder games? No, I haven't. I feel like they're very much in the lineage of like the Infinity Engine stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I 
I must admit, I, I, I bounced off them. They're, they're very hardcore. Like, the rules are quite complicated. Like, just the, the, the character creation in the first Pathfinder game is one of the most terrifying things I've experienced in a video game where <laughs> it was asking me to make so many decisions about things I had no idea, <laughs> like, what was going on. I think you'd have to, like, play many hours of that game just to, to understand the kind of thing you would need to then go back and remake in Character Creator. Yeah. Um, but it almost felt like because because there's this like more mainstream RPG scene, which is like well-fed, which has simplified things, it almost allows you to go like double down on this really hardcore you know yeah. it's, it's just a rule set tran- translated to a game again but there's like no fear of going like all in on it which um you know it's admirable i just i just wish it could they could somehow tutorialize that better because I've, I've only heard good things about both those games apparently the second one's got absolutely amazing like power curves for its classes like you are absolutely godlike by the end which i'd love to see yeah. um but yeah, God knows how I will ever learn to pass. It. Yeah, there's the um, the Shadowrun games as well, right? The modern uh, trilogy, I think they are, um, and they're very good as well. They they kind of more towards the like Planescape Torment end of things, where it's very dialogue and prose driven, and the combat right. end is there's like a turn based combat system, but it's it's more simplified on a systemic level. But those are very good games as well which feel feel like they sort of um you know were came out of that era where it became acceptable for people to make uh, isometric uh, western rpgs again i suppose with that in mind jeremy do you think there's now quite a healthy space for rpgs outside of the mainstream and uh and not just being nostalgia plays do you think that you can now access a pretty wide range of stuff if you have the appetite for it yeah i think it's, it is in a good place where it's like it's not even just that you have the mainstream and uh, then sort of nostalgic things that that recreate the 90s like this month there's a game called stray gods that's come out right or is about to come out which is written by david gader of uh, Baldur's gate and dragon age fame and that's a musical that's like an rpg musical and you have like mass effect style dialogue wheel choices to make and they impact on the kind of uh on on how the songs go ahead and like that isn't um you know it it doesn't fulfill all of the usual expectations of a of an rpg and it, it probably i would imagine doesn't have like an inventory system where you can become over encumbered and yet it is you know rooted in that western rpg history and uh and taps into some of those wants. Um, there's also stuff like mm-hmm. like Banner Saga, which is older now, but like I thought that was a really cool series in that it felt like it felt like a full RPG, even though it didn't have like free exploration and uh, you know traps and an inventory and all of these things, which were expectations of the genre at one point. It, it still managed to like create the feel of going on that kind of adventure and then just to kind of lean into the dialogue and choice of combat end of things um mm. so I, I really i really like that it's becoming a more freeform space uh slowly yeah i've also got the, like the likes of wildermyth where there's you know the 
a sort of like less predictable element to them and that's become a bit of a hit and yeah it does seem like even compared to 10 years ago which is basically around the time they were making pillars that things are just in a in a much better state so I I um I don't fancy the chances of the musical RPG much with our Discord crowd because they were all talking about how they watched the musical episode of Star Trek and they were just like just skip the songs. <laughs> and were like all right, <laughs> well that's a pointless a pointless exercise. <laughs> I, I must admit I am dreading this. Me and Matthew were talking about this the day of a pizza, but I feel like the musical episode of a TV show has been a diminish on diminishing returns ever since that Buffy episode. Yeah, the, the Buffy one is it's, great, but I thought the musical episode of Star Trek was pretty good. Okay. Can Anson some... Mount sing? Uh, yeah, he can sing alright. They've got a, they, there's obviously a couple of the members of the cast are like proper good singers. Yeah. Like their security officer and Uhara can can Uhura can both sing. So they have quite a lot. And I'll tell you who can't <laughs> is the um the is it Doctor and Benga? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I now like want to watch he, it to see. He, he does not have a lot to do in that episode. <laughs> is it? Is he got some spoken word kind of like uh... very auto tuned? Yeah. Not to dunk on the guy, but it just made me laugh. Like <laughs> if I was on a crew, if I was on the cast of a crew at a show, and they're like, "There's gonna be a musical episode," I'd be like, "Foot, I'm so fun." <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the the Amazing. Grey's Anatomy musical episode, I remember being. Oh. Uh, I don't know. I think that was not hateful. I don't remember exactly, but uh, <laughs> can't yeah. can't think of anything I'd rather watch. <laughs> Grey's Anatomy musical episode. That's, what's ro- that sounds like what's wrong with a man singing through a, through a surgery, Samuel? I don't see anything uh, <laughs> unfortunate about that. I've seen I've seen the Scrubs one. I assume they're very similar. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, Stray Gods. Uh, I'll look out for that. Um, David Gaither, a super interesting guy. So, okay. Right then, so let's get to Larian a little bit here. So where do they slot into the history of RPGs, Jeremy? What's their journey in parallel to all of what we've been discussing? Yeah, it's really interesting because for so long they're just sort of chasing out of necessity what the trends are. Like from the beginning, Sven Vinker and his team have this like desire to recreate Ultima 7 and build on it and have these really, um, you know, the thing that Ultima 7 and... and the later divinity games have in common is this sort of really dense world where you can pick up every item and use keys on doors and like there's this it just feels like there's a real sort of uh immersive sim like um simulation to the world and you know for the majority of larian's history that wasn't really feasible for them to get made like in the beginning they're like told you need to be making diablo and then by divinity 2 they're like well it's the era of uh, Knights of the Old Republic to Mass Effect, and you have to mould to that form. Like they had to make a big 3D game, and in the course of that, lose a lot of that sort of systemic nuance. And it's only really when the Kickstarter age happens that they get to reset things a bit. And um, I think even with Divinity Original Sin at a certain point they were still working with like a Diablo style combat system and Sven Vinker was uh, had a sort of shower moment where he was like why are we still it's almost like the the publisher in his head that was still telling him what to do is like we don't have to do this anymore and that was when they switched to this turn-based combat system which is proven really popular and they like they became started to become their the kind of full selves for the first time 
So it's yeah, it's this fascinating journey of a developer who always really knew what they wanted to make, but were just beholden to the winds of the genre for so long that they were really just surviving until they could make it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That it feels like the original Sin games mark maybe a step up in in how those games are perceived and their levels of popularity. Like, what do you think they either brought to RPGs or brought back into prominence that have maybe been forgotten by other games in the genre? Is it, like you say, maybe it's the approach to turn-based combat, or is it like maybe a reactivity that people wanted from RPGs they weren't getting elsewhere? What what is it? Do you think? Yeah, there's almost a kind of like simulation reactivity that had been lost where like if you play something like witcher 3 you make all your choices in dialogue and you know all all the systems that there are are very sort of ring fenced it's like you're in combat mode you're in talking mode and um and that's part of how you make a very polished triple a game is to like sort of limit the eventualities that could make your game look funny or go wrong um Whereas Larian really lean into all that stuff and having like the kind of thing like in the original Baldur's Gate, a simple example of like there's a lock chest. You can pick it. If you don't have anyone who can pick it, you can use your sword to break it open and the mass will calculate that for you and you still find another way in. And like Larian is Larian's uh, game since Original Sin are full of moments like that where there's just a they just they just go well out of their way to support all these kind of possible connections where one mm-hmm. of your characters can be in dialogue mode speaking to a character and another of them can go off and sneak around the back and pick the pocket of the person you're talking to while it's happening and that's just like i think that's mind-blowing to rpg fans who have grown up with these much sort of stricter um play spaces where you don't get to to muck about in the same way like there's a an incredible moment I had in Original Sin 2 not that long ago where um, to get out the first act you have to get past these horribly like crucified warped people who just kind of scream and destroy you if you attempt to, to pass them it's horrific one mm. of the ways you can get past them is acquiring these wands which kind of suck the the magical source power out of these these poor crucified people and so you can leave and I, I think I acquired one of these ones, but then found another way to get off this, this island in the first act. And then during the second act, I had a boss fight where there's um, it's like an evil dwarf, I think. And he there's a point where he's he's kind of on the verge of like a transformation into this uh, this horrible boss creature. And using that wand, um, I was able to to prevent him from doing that so this one that was designed for a specific quest in the first act i'd like i managed to remove this boss through like a convoluted like process of like teleporting him multiple times via three or four characters to like take him away from his sort of boss area and his minions and then like right. there was like a nearby corpse where the boss could like pull source power from it and so i used the one to drain the power from that corpse so that he then couldn't metamorphosize and then killed him much more easily. I'm like, how on earth has this developer thought to like make sure that this particular wand, which was never really supposed to be in the scenario I'm using it, can then be used to, you know, beat a boss in a completely different area? Yeah. Like, it's just absolutely mind-blowing sort of um, systemic connections in that game. 
it's quite a quite a sort of uh, convoluted story. I hope that was possible to follow. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's that I, I, those kind of moments in the Larian games which you don't get anywhere else at all. I, yeah, I, I would add to it like in that kind of sort of immersive silliness, which sort of speaks to a certain like set of people who are quite good at getting creative with thoughts and there are other people who you know you put me in front of a dishonored and I actually play it quite conservatively I'm not a very like imaginative thinker in terms of like well you know I could go out of my way to do this more complicated thing and I think one of the things Larian did really well in both Divinity and, and uh, Original Sin 1 and 2 is they put a lot of that reactivity like quite on the surface like it's quite hard to miss yeah, yeah. so you're you're kind of almost forced to play with it you know you, you don't really discover that you can like set you know oil on fire like it probably will happen or like you electrify water and it kind of takes the kind of reactivity that you might have to discover in another game puts that up front but then you know that kind of awakens the idea of well there might be more beyond that and there is more beyond that and it, it it's one of the more successful examples i've played of a game which has sort of shown you the route into its more creative thinking. Yeah. Where I think sometimes in other games, that's either locked out or you don't really see the point of it. But um, yeah, that's that that was a big part of it. And also just like their dedication to like, if this thing is a, you know, like, you know that one thing's a perfect example, but they have a lot of mechanics where like, well, if this is the rule, then we have to make sure the rule holds up for the whole yeah. game. So yeah, that's the you know, whole. If you can talk to animals, you can talk to all animals, and they've all got to have something to say, and there has to be meaning, you know, meaning to that. Or you know, if you can, if you kill someone and then bring them back to life as a ghost, if everyone can come back as a ghost, and then you can interact with that ghost, what does that mean? Yeah, they just follow their thinking through. Um, so it's kind of this like, it's this one-two punch of like systemic reactivity, which is you know, yeah, very systems based, but also like writerly craft. Yeah of knowing where, like, they have to catch you and, like, where the words need to be. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree that, like, I don't think Original Sin even lets you succeed without getting to grips with that kind of reactivity. Like, you can't you can't win mm. in combat without combining the elements in, in clever ways. Yeah. And some, some people don't like that yeah. about it. You know, they say it's, like, gimmicky, but actually, like, if, if, I, if, I, if I wasn't forced to do it, I wouldn't do it. I know myself, I know I wouldn't yeah. do it. And then I just wouldn't be playing with like half of what the game has to offer. Yeah, yeah. And it's not uh, also like these games didn't arrive perfect. Like the first original sin, the writing in that is, I think it's good, but it's like it's sort of a, uh, almost annoyingly playful. It's sort of like alliterative and sorts of wordplay and stuff. And I think, <clears throat> you know, by the time Original Sin 2 comes around, and that really is like a mega hit. Like a, a genuine Steam mega hit, like they've they've nailed down some of the more frustrating elements better by that point. Mm. Okay, which I, I suppose brings us to Baldur's Gate three. So, I suppose that the big question is, what does this represent? Both of you, I'm asking you uh, asking this, but what does this represent in the history, the evolution of the RPG, but also in the evolution of Larian's RPGs? It's a it's a great convergence moment, I guess. Like it's, I still don't really believe it's happened. Like <laughs> it's it's the connection of these these sides of the Western RPG that we previously thought couldn't be connected. You know, all the kind of sacrifices you make 
from Mass Effect onwards to have a cinematic RPG which has full voice acting and is very satisfying in that polished AAA way. Baldur's Gate 3 makes none of those sacrifices. Like It has all of that immersive sim reactivity. It has all of those animals who all speak throughout the game. Um, and to make that happen, Larian is like, it's not like a 450 person studio plus support studios. Like they've just funneled all the success from the original Sim games into extending their like lack of compromise to just AAA levels. And nobody has ever done that before. <laughs> like it is unprecedented. And, um, you know, as I, I think Zalavia Nelson, the, the, very wise developer pointed out on Twitter like it's not something we can expect from other developers like it's not really you know who don't have this deeply held design philosophy and the funds that Larian do like it's not going to be the new standard but I do think it will be hugely influential because it sort of brings together that hardcore um, parallel string of RPGs with the AAA side um without you know taking away any of the key elements yeah Yeah. it's the omni game i just can't believe it exists (laughs) (laughs) it feels like the only real comparison point is i guess like cd project with a witcher 3 moment but they had a completely different intent with what they, they they did with that stepping up you know to the bigger canvas kind of moment so yeah like i say the idea that they they're holding on to specific philosophies to and and making that leap at great expense is 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 unprecedented and yeah as pointed out not going to be replicated so super unusual you two have been playing it let's talk a bit about your experiences so far so i think you've both played about the same amount about a day's worth of the game um matthew how are you finding it so far yeah great i mean i, I played you know a decent chunk of it in early access for various coverage so i kind of i'm not out of what i've already quote-unquote seen in early access like it it is quite substantially changed um so i'm still in the first act um but i'm kind of like playing with characters and companions i haven't played before and a lot of it for me, me has been you know covering this game and interviewing them there's there's been a lot of like excitable hints at things to come and like writers desperately wanting to tell you about such and such or Sven is like an amazing salesman himself like he's very good at like this character's got this mechanic which we've never done before and I can't wait for people to see it so part of it's been me just sort of trying to sort of fill in all the gaps and all the kind of ambiguities yeah I, I think it's pretty amazing I, I, I'm not a D&D person so it requires some knowledge to, to maybe get like everything out of it you know I find myself having to kind of like look up quite a lot of stuff online still but um now I'm over that initial hump what I really love is is that exactly that thing I said with Divinity it's, it's that kind of like collision of the emergent with the authored in a really interesting way like the fact that it has a lot of stories and a lot of things that can happen in different places so it's it's it doesn't feel too scripted it feels very organic and sometimes different events can happen at the same time in ways that they couldn't possibly have predicted that they would but kind of makes them even more kind of chaotic i'll give an example and this has got some very light spoilers for some like early character stuff so apologies uh, you can skip ahead two minutes jeremy you can't obviously. <laughs> uh yeah, so hopefully not spoiling anything massively for you here. One of the new companions who wasn't in the, the early access is this um, a tiefling called 
Karlak. Is there? Is that? Is Tiefling the right word? Yeah, like the the sort of demonic um, influence. He's sort of human demon type, not not out and out demon. And you meet this this character, and they're on a bit of a revenge mission. When you complete the first stage of their revenge mission, they basically like lose their shit, and um, this like stat gets imposed on them called unbridled fury, which basically means they they just go on a fucking rampage. They basically like leave your party and just start running around smashing the shit out of everything they see in sight, <laughs> uh, maybe including you. And so that's all playing out. And I was like, oh, my God, what's going on here? And she was just setting everything on fire because she's like a demon. She's covered in flames. At the same time, in the fight which triggered that, the wizard in my party, Gale, had died. And Gale, again, not to spoil his backstory, he had, there, there is something about him where if he dies, it's quite bad news for like everyone. And this situation suddenly emerges that you have to kind of deal with. And... Like obviously they couldn't predict those two things would happen at the same moment or in the same fight, but like the panic of like ah oh, fuck Carlac's going out of our mind, and then all of a sudden there's this bloke going oh I need you to do something really complicated or something dire is going to happen, <laughs> and you couldn't have scripted it better, but they didn't script it. You know that's that's the beauty of it, and it, it, you know that's just like one moment of like tens that I've already had where just the the particular character that i brought or the particular combination of companions or the the angle that i approached a certain situation like the way the game kind of like gave me you know close to a, a scripted experience even though i kind of devised it myself like that sort of feels like like holy grail stuff on a level you know of of like that's that's what you want interactive storytelling to be like a story which feels you know, oft, often when things are like very reactive or emergent, they like lose specificity in the process, and this like absolutely doesn't. Like that's you'd think it was that that way for everyone. It's that polished and it looks that good and it plays out so satisfyingly. Like it's um, that's like quite an astonishing achievement. Yeah, yeah. How about you, how about you, Jeremy? How are you finding it? I hate it. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, similar to you, Matthew, it's like I haven't seen any new quest lines or areas that I hadn't already seen in early access and previews. But um, already there's there's clearly a lot new about them. Like um, mm. you know, when I went on the press trip to to Ghent that you were also on, but we unfortunately have no crossover on whatsoever. You missed that. You missed out on Source Game. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed hearing that like trip from another perspective. It was like getting a getting a second episode, which where the events play out from a different view. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's very very Baldur's Gate three. Yeah, it's the same same trip, two very different experiences. Yeah. yeah, and like I my sort of guide on that trip for playing through a chunk of the game was uh, a writer called Crystal Drink, who Crystal Drink, sorry, and she um, she works at the Guildford office in uh, Larian's Guildford office which I didn't know existed up until that point but her and her team like they've spent a couple of years just sort of like as far as I can tell just sort of adding more and more possible bits of writing that can happen based on who your character is like what species you've picked and what class you picked and what decisions you make in the course of the game so like I think I heard at one point like that first act of the game has like a third more writing again 
without you know having kind of expanded out with loads of new quests and stuff it's just like there's there's more and more under the hood to enable that mm. kind of reactivity to a degree where it feels like you have a dm in the room with you who is just kind of like giving you what you need based on your decisions um and that is a wild thing like i've never experienced that to that degree in um in an rpg like it's the kind of thing that obsidian have always shot for but i don't think i've ever had like the funds or the backing to to follow through to this degree um it's a wild Mm. thing on my my new playthrough really striking thing was is just um i'm playing as a halfling and the camera angles in conversation uh which i wasn't expecting but i remember like i interviewed sven on this recent trip and he was saying like there was a big argument early on between the cinematics team which was kind of like a lot of them had come from telltale and they're like you know we need to position the camera here in this scene and then other teams would say well you've got this goblin on this roof who's speaking but the player might have pushed them off that roof beforehand uh so you need to account for that uh, in the cinematics, and then just being like, "This is ridiculous! Like, how could we possibly do that?" Um, but that is what they've achieved. Or like playing as a halfling, like every time a, a tall character speaks to me, like I'm I'm looking up at them, and I feel like I feel my position in the world very distinctly in a way that I haven't done in an uh. RPG previously. I was like, "Oh wow!" Like the way that these different disciplines come together to remind you of who you've picked to be in this world at all times uh, is really striking. Do you yeah, think... Sorry, Matthew, go on. I was just going to say, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. <laughs> it's dead <laughs> not, good. Not a valuable contribution <laughs> at all. <laughs> well, I do wonder if there is maybe an element of people not being served this elsewhere by modern blockbuster games and, and that being part of its popularity that if you want something that is not linear and super polished that maybe this is a this is the alternative you are looking for with a you know a similar level of investment do you think there is i suppose i want to ask jeremy is do you think that the popularity of this game is not necessarily just tied to the fact that larian's reputation has been accumulating do you think there is a fatigue at the way that other other rpgs have been approaching you know similar parts of the the genre yeah i feel like you know we've had a decade or two really of rpgs increasingly going well you you can't um you know start a fight with this npc who isn't marked as hostile because that could lead to these series of consequences which will muck up this scripted quest we've got and we can't account for all that because we don't have the budget to account for it all in 3d with voice acting and all this stuff and valerian to just suddenly be saying yes to everything is uh is a big deal i think also like the bioware rpg hasn't existed for quite a while like bioware almost sort of gave up on itself like you hear david gader talk about this like for whatever reason at a certain point in that studio like you would think the writers in that studio would be sort of like you know people taking them grapes and sort of like treating them like royalty because they are they are the reason it it is where it is but like at a certain point when they were making anthem it was like we don't there there was almost a kind of lack of respect or we need to sort of turn our back on 
on what we've been doing and i feel like mm. you know some of some of that stuff the good stuff still exists in cd projects games in a big way but outside of that um you don't really get that sort of like big sort of companion based storytelling from a from a sort of big budget western rpg um anywhere so it feels like larian's kind of pulling together a, a bunch of very hardcore and also mainstream rpg groups who've been underserved and it seems like it is mm. doing incredibly well um like i read that the the launch of Baldur's Gate 3 on Steam is bigger than Fallout 4, which seems... Wow. <laughs> to, I mean, confirmation required, maybe, but, like, whoa. If, uh, like, to even yeah. be in that conversation is unbelievable. Um, so, yeah, it feels like it feels like it's it has kind of tapped into a very hungry set of audiences. So reassuring as well that it can do that even though, like, I would say it's still quite a hardcore game. Like that thing I was saying about the not really understanding some of the D and D rules and not explaining itself. Like, there's a lot there. I don't think it's like taken a massive leap beyond like Original Sin two in terms of explaining itself and presenting its ideas or like tutorializing. You know, it's 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 really really full on, and there's lots of stuff you have to like figure out for yourself. And the kind of things that people would say are like absolute no nos. Um, yeah, you know, I. Th- like there's start i just don't know that they are like I, f- I feel like there's a lot of like received wisdom that that gets kind of questioned every time a game like this does does really well or you know the continued from soft thing yeah you know is constantly challenging like the general difficulty discussion and 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 what we think the mainstream values in games but um yeah that can only be a good thing to kind of have something which does so well while kind of rejecting it i mean Maybe it could meet meet them halfway. Like I, st- I still think there's probably a, uh, you know, d- Larry and tend to do these like definitive editions like a couple of years later, and I do wonder if there's like like an even slicker, smoother entry into this game, which would propel it even further. But it doesn't need to go much further. It seems it's already done crazy bits. Yeah, mm. if it kind of feels like, um. I don't know, maybe the, the level of cinema on this one is such that even if you're kind of really new to a lot of the hardcore elements, like you're you're intrigued enough to want to get to grips with it. Like it's Yeah. It feels like you know, if you've if you've grown up on The Witcher Three, you can see that it has, you know, enough of those kind of like familiar elements in how it operates, but also has these hidden depths which are um, which you've never yeah. seen before. Maybe that. Maybe there's enough there to keep that's, you going. Yeah, maybe maybe The Witcher Three is a good example because that's that's got quite a lot of strange quirks, like the yeah. whole the drinking system to kind of re-energize and the meditation and things. Like there are some things which are quite distinct to that game's lore, which you wouldn't necessarily grasp first time out. And you know, it's also a game probably designed to be played four years yeah so you know having those kind of depths there um yeah it's cool Mm. well it seems like at some point we'll have to return to this game and talk about it some more matthew um when you've got to grips with it further and uh jeremy excited to hear more about how you get on with it too but um 
Yes. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy. I think it's been a it's been a really great episode, and you've definitely carried us through this one. <laughs> so, really appreciate it. Is there anything you wanted to sort of plug or discuss um, to take us out here? Uh, not especially. This has been very fun, and uh, yeah, Jeremy underscore Peel on on X. <laughs> <laughs> uh, i'm samuel Dever roberts on x matthew what about you uh, mr basil underscore pesto on x yep and uh, the podcast is back page pod if you'd like to follow us for updates on the podcast um i've sent matthew a blue sky code did you use that code in the end matthew oh i haven't used it yet no sorry no it's fine it's i get one every two weeks so jeremy if you want the next one just give me a shout and yeah i'll oh, yeah. do Go it on. i just need to like <laughs> I get to be yeah. people's cool on- online friend now, so that's that's exciting <laughs> for me. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been great to talk with you, Jeremy. We'll have you back on for um uh, like a an episode that's like super light next time. Maybe we'll do like another litigator genre thing and um, have you back on for that to sort of like aid in the courtroom. Um, so uh, and even if you don't come along for that one, I'm sure you'll pop up as a character in Games Court next time. So <laughs> you've always got that to look forward to. That'd be good. Um, okay, great. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye bye. love to live in a country where KFC was Christmas dinner? Uh, I'd like to at least have the option, you know? Just... <laughs> it's like special. You book it in advance people like queue up for it. Uh, right. Is it like any more expensive than it is here? Or Yeah, I th- well, you, you, they, add a, they add some extra. I think there's like a special cake that you don't normally that, like a, you know, like an equi- a Christmas pudding type thing. Oh. It's like a very set meal, you know? It's not like, I don't think they're eating like a Tower Zinger burger. <laughs> Like so, I, I just pictured a Tower Zinger burger, but it has cranberry sauce on it. That's what I basically had it. <laughs> <laughs> Not the same thing. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think it is a very specific like kind of meal. Okay. Um, but obviously built from the constituent parts of the KFC menu. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, interesting. <laughs> it's like, yeah. what's the classiest meal we can build with all this trash? <laughs> That's quite a design challenge. That is because yeah. you don't have a lot to work with, you know. Yeah. We're gonna it's have a, a bit a like stuffing. that bit in the bear where she makes the omelette and then smashes a load of crisps on top. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, yeah, we're gonna make stuffing out of popcorn chicken. We're just gonna like crush that basically. Cook you can that. make anything out of anything if you put your imagination to it. Yeah, you don't have like much in the way of sort of green to deal with with KFC. Just a bit of lettuce basically, and like maybe a tomato. I, actually, I'm not sure if I've ever seen a tomato at KFC. I don't think I have. Oh, I think it's, it might. It's, pr- it's profoundly beige. It is. It is. But some days when you're in the mood for it, it's, it hits the spot. So, yeah, yeah. I guess we should keep this in the pod. People are probably enjoy it. I'll uh, I'll put it on as a little a little stinger at the end. Nice post credits. Uh, back when that wasn't. All I had was profoundly beige. <laughs> well, we weren't talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talk about your takes, Jeremy. That's what wow. we were. Wow. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs>